Welcome to the Parkview Church Training Podcast, where we equip you to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Well, good evening. Thank you for, for coming along and for um, the way. Thank you for inviting me and for, for hosting me. It's my, my first time in Iowa, so I feel glad to be <laughs> visiting lovely Iowa. Um, I didn't bring a coat. That was my first mistake. <laughs> I was under the mistaken assumption it was spring. Um, apparently that doesn't start for another few months, right? But um, it's, a, it's a joy uh, and a privilege to be with you. Thank you not just for being here. Thank you, I take it, for, for caring about the kinds of things we're thinking about this evening. Uh, when we take a word like sexuality, uh, we're aware that we're, we're talking about something that strikes very close to home for very many people. All of us are sexual beings, all of us have some kind of sexuality, but we're particularly aware that when it comes to issues of sexual orientation, gender identity, all of these kinds of things that we so often hear about, we know that we're speaking about something that that involves people very close to us. Um, Maybe we've got someone in our life who identifies as LGBT plus or, or something like that. I'm sure most of us know someone for whom that would be the case. And so when we hear a topic like sexuality, we're not just thinking about something that's, that's abstract, something that, it's a, that is at arm's length. We're thinking about faces of people that we know, people that we love very dearly. So this is not theoretical. And for some of us, perhaps for, for a number of us in the room, this comes even closer to home than that. It's not just that we know other people for whom this has been a very particularly personal issue, but maybe for some of us it's part of our own story as well. And that's certainly the, the case for me. Um, the only real romantic uh, and sexual attractions I've ever experienced have been towards other men. Uh, it took me a long time to, to figure that out, it took me a long time to kind of recognize that was what was going on. I was a, a teenager in the early 90s, so I'm in my mid-40s now, just to save you some math. Um, (laughs) And it was a very, very different world um, in the early 90s. Those of us who were old enough to remember the early 90s will know that. Um, And we didn't have the same categories of of sexual identity that are so sort of commonly available and accessible now. And so wrestling with these issues, I, I didn't really have any external sort of help with that. And it took me a long time to figure out what was going on. When I was about, I think, 14, my my best friend at high school started dating a girl for the first time. And I remember very vividly, it was a Monday morning, we were all catching up on each other's news from the weekend, and he said, oh, I've just started dating this girl. And all of my friends were were kind of excited for him, congratulating him, um, enthusing. Um, we're all English, so we do this in a very understated kind of way, you'll understand. Um, excitement for us is going, hmm. Okay, that's. You shoot guns in the air or something over here when you're excited, but that's what we do. Um, so people were congratulating him and, uh, you know, being happy for him. And I remember smiling outwardly, but inwardly feeling crushed, and I, I had no idea why. I hadn't consciously thought of my friend in a, in a romantic kind of way, but even then I was evidently developing a very deep emotional attachment to him. 
And so the idea that he was now being very intimate with somebody else left me feeling very threatened, very vulnerable. Um, I felt crushed by the whole thing, and it was very confusing. And then as the next kind of couple of years went on, I, I became more aware that I, I seemed to be developing in a way that was different to my friends. Um, I was at an all-boys high school um, in England, and so there were only two things we ever talked about, sport and girls. Um, I'm no good at sport. Um, anything that involves you know, throwing a ball or running in a straight line or anything like that, I'm just not very good at it. Um, I don't know if it's physically possible for your center of gravity to be outside of your body, but if, <laughs> if that's possible, mine definitely is, because balance, coordination, I don't have. So I wasn't very good at talking about sport, and I wasn't very good about talking about girls either. And the question would, would come up so often, who do you like? Who are you pursuing? Who is it you want to go out with? And the, the question would kind of go around the friendship circle, and as it would come round to me, I would try and change the subject. Um, if that wasn't a possibility or didn't work, I would, I would have to just make up a name. And this happened a few times. Someone would say, who do you like? And I'd go, um, and I'd be thinking to myself, think of a girl's name, any girl's name will do, and just say it out loud. So I'd go, uh, Denise. Yes, Denise, there's a girl called Denise that I like. And that wouldn't let me off the hook because they would then say, oh, who is she, do we know her? And I'd have to say, yeah, I, I don't think you do know her. Um, no, she's, she's not from round here. Uh, actually, she's from Norway, so no, you won't know her or ever meet her. Funny life, isn't it? Never occurred to anyone that Denise is not really a typical Scandinavian girl's name, but there we go. It was a, it was a painful time of life. I, I just wanted to be like my other friends, and in what seemed like a very defining and significant way, I wasn't. Um, everything seemed to be about who you liked, who you were dating, and how that was going. And I couldn't seem to enter into that whole part of our experience. And to make life more complicated, those feelings for girls that they were describing but which I couldn't relate to, I was beginning to discover that I was feeling some of those feelings for one or two of my friends. And when I was 17, I was waiting to catch a bus to go home at the end of the day. I remember standing at the bus stop. Um, I don't know why this thought came to me there, of all places, but that's where this happened. I was just stood there and my mind suddenly said to me, I think I'm gay. And those words hadn't assembled themselves in that order in my head before, but the moment they did, I thought, well, yeah, that must be the case. I don't have romantic attractions to girls and I do have romantic attractions to one or two guys. And at that particular moment, I was applying for different universities to, to go to, all of which were in other cities. And I remember thinking, okay, maybe when I go to university, this is something I can explore. Um, at the time, that the schools I was applying to had what were then LGB societies. So I remember thinking, maybe I could sort of sneak into one of those groups and just sort of, just see how things go. And my plan was, to lead a bit of a double life. I'll, I'll go to university, kind of explore this stuff there, and no one back home would need to know. And again, this was the, this was the early 90s. This, this is, 
feels catastrophically old to say this. This was before the internet. <laughs> so it was very conceivable to lead a double life. Um, wasn't TikToking my daily movements or, or anything like that. I, I, could, I could do that. And that was my plan. But in between standing at that bus stop and arriving at university, something else happened that I hadn't planned for or, or expected, and that is I became a Christian. Hadn't been looking to do that. That wasn't part of my own agenda. But a, a Christian friend of mine had invited me to his church's youth ministry. Um, I had just finished my last exams for high school, had nothing else to do for, for the next few weeks. So when he said, hey, why don't you come to my church's youth group? I thought, well, I literally can't think of anything else to do, so I'll, I'll go along. And I thought, you know, I respected my friend. I, I wanted to find out more about what he believed, what made him tick. So I thought, yeah, it'd be good for me to find out what, what he's into, what he believes. Uh, and so I'm, I'm willing to go along. I wasn't spiritually seeking or searching. And as I went to that very first youth meeting, we did the usual youth ministry things. There was a wonky snooker table and, you know, a few games and that kind of thing but someone gave a, a short presentation explaining the message of Jesus and I realized immediately that the Jesus I had imagined was very different to the Jesus I was now hearing about I had assumed Christianity was about God congratulating good people what I was hearing was that Christianity was about God coming to find lost people and something deep within me recognized that I might be one of those lost people. Not because of my sexuality, I wasn't even thinking in those terms, but simply because I was thinking, well, if there, if there is a God who made me, I don't know him. And I'm probably supposed to. And that's probably on me. So I remember thinking, if, there, if God really does exist and if he really did make me, I'm lost. I don't, I don't know the way to him. And over the next few weeks began to understand more about how Jesus came to find the lost, what it meant for him to, to die for us and to rise again. And I remember thinking, okay, this is someone I can build my life on. And so the, the week I turned 18, I remember thinking, okay, from, I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus. So as a, as a brand new disciple of Jesus, who'd only recently kind of begun to recognize his own sexual feelings, one of the big questions I had as a brand new Christian was, well, what does Jesus have to say about this kind of stuff? I wasn't even sure if he did have anything to say, but I thought, well, I want to follow Jesus. Where is he on this kind of thing? And many people today would be surprised to hear that Jesus does have anything to say. There's a lot of stuff going around that implies Jesus is just neutral on these kinds of things. But the fact is there, there, are, there are places where Jesus does speak to the issue of sexuality. And so I want to sh share with you just a, a couple of places Jesus does that, places that have really helped me think this through as a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to share a couple of verses from, uh, from Matthew's Gospel. I'll read them out loud, so don't worry if you don't have a, a, a Bible on you. You can always look them up. You can get it on your phone if you need to, to follow along. Um, so in Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says these words. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this is from a a section of Jesus' teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. It's very well known. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know bits of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is a part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is taking some of the Old Testament commandments, specifically some of the Ten Commandments, and he's showing what they really mean in contrast to how they've been taken up until that point. And so he does that with the commandment against adultery. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Indeed, they had heard that. You shall not commit adultery was one of the Ten Commandments. It prohibited any kind of unfaithfulness within your own marriage or in in somebody else's. And our understanding is that Jesus was talking to, we we understand, an audience of most likely of Jewish men. And as they were listening to Jesus, they would be thinking, yeah, yeah, we've, we've heard that. We know that commandment well. We've been told that many times. And I'm very sure the vast majority of those guys would have been listening to Jesus thinking, actually, yeah, we, we've not only heard that commandment, we've kept it. I'm sure the vast majority of those men would be thinking, yeah, I've, I've, I've not cheated on my wife. I've not messed around in anyone else's marriage. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about this commandment. Um, You got me with a couple of other ones, Jesus, fair play, but I'm feeling pretty good about this one. So Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He then says, but I say to you, and maybe just for a split second, some of those guys were listening to him thinking, oh, where's he going to go with this? You know, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you... You've got to follow your heart. Maybe that's where he's going. Maybe he's going to loosen things up a bit. The Old Testament was a bit kind of, you know, tight on these things. Maybe Jesus is going to kind of, you know, be a bit more kind of laid back on these things. But here's what Jesus says. He says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying adultery doesn't just happen in a bedroom. It happens in your heart. He's saying, listen, this commandment is not simply about your physical behavior. It's about your internal attitude. And if I can put it this way, adultery is not just about what you do with your your genitals. It's about what you do with your eyes. It's about how you look at someone. It's about what you do with your mind, how you think about someone. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if if you're looking at someone lustfully, you've broken this commandment. Well, what does that mean to look at someone lustfully? Well, to look at someone lustfully means to turn someone else's sexuality into a commodity. To turn it into something that is there to satisfy your desires. To satisfy your appetite. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's tied to coveting. It's trying to take something that isn't yours. If you you look at the wider teaching of the Bible about sexuality, God's design for sexuality is that it's meant to be a form of self-giving within the covenant of marriage. It's a way of giving all of who you are 
to another person exclusively for the rest of your life. Whereas lust is a way of, of making sexuality about taking from someone else for your own sake. And so it contradicts God's design for sexual intimacy. So what Jesus is, is trying to show these, these folks is if, if that is now the definition of adultery, if that's what it was always getting at, Jesus is trying to show us this is, this is going to be an issue for us. And actually what Jesus is doing with all of these, the, the commandments that he references from the, from the Ten Commandments, he's trying to show us the Ten Commandments weren't given to give people a chance to prove how good they can be. The Ten Commandments were actually given to expose what our hearts are like. Now, I'm from England, and therefore I should not be talking about dentistry. <laughs> but we do have dentists, believe it or not, in England. At least three or four, maybe. Um, I, I get a checkup at, at my dentist once a year, at least, unless there's something that's going wrong. And the same thing tends to happen. It's the, it's the day of my appointment, and I'm thinking, okay, I've got an appointment at the dentist this morning. I'm going to brush my teeth really well, okay? So that morning, I'm like, right, you know, huge amounts of toothpaste. There's just going to be foam and froth everywhere. Brushing away, brushing away, burning calories as I do so. Blood pouring out of my mouth by this stage. But I'm thinking, I'm going to, have, I'm going to make sure I'm going to go to the dentist with clean teeth. Okay, they're going to give me like a, a medal or something. So there I'm, I've brushed my teeth as if it's a kind of new Olympic event. And I arrive at the dentist, the usual thing. They get that thing that looks like an unfolded paper clip. I'm sure it isn't. And then they poke your gums with it. That's what being a dentist is, by the way. You get one of those things that poke, poke someone's gums with it. Um, and then there comes a moment where he says, okay, I've got a, a little cup of like pink liquid. I just want you to take a sip of it, swill it around your mouth for a moment and spit it out and it's going to show up the dirt on your teeth. And I'm thinking, not these teeth. <laughs> Everyone else is, yeah, but not, not mine. I, I brushed my teeth today. Um, so anyway, I take a cup of swick of this thing, swish it around, around for a bit, spit it out. He says, okay, now just look at your teeth in that little mirror there. And I, I look and all I can see is pink. And he should say, yes, you think you've cleaned your teeth, but actually you haven't. There's still all of this gunk and dirt on, on your teeth. And Jesus is trying to show us that that is what the Ten Commandments do for us. We, we think, okay, I'm a pretty good person. Whatever, you know, whatever God's standard is, I'm, I'm, probably, I'm probably okay. There's certainly some other people who are definitely worse than I am. So I feel kind of safe. And Jesus is saying, actually, the Ten Commandments are there to show us that the gunk that is in our hearts. And part of that gunk is lustfulness. That's, this is what we do. This is instinctively how we misuse other people's sexuality and our own. So Jesus is trying to show these people, this, this is in... This is in all of our hearts. He's putting all of us in the same boat. Irrespective of what your attractions happen to be, all of us are not what we're meant to be in this part of life. Uh, all of us are going to need grace and forgiveness and help from God. This is one of the ways where we see something of our spiritual lostness. 
Now, just as a, an important aside, Jesus is, is talking there about the person doing the looking. And if we understand what Jesus is saying here, it will humble every single one of us. Jesus is, is challenging in this part of life. I think he's the most challenging person there is when it comes to human sexuality. But you've got to understand he's challenging to all of us. But think for a moment about what Jesus is implying about the person being looked at. Jesus is saying that person, they have a sexual dignity that matters so much to Jesus, it mustn't be violated even in the privacy of someone else's mind. So Jesus is challenging us, he's convicting us because we have these hearts that, that do think lustfully about other people, but he's also dignifying us at the very same time because he's also saying to us, it matters to him how other people look at you. How other people think about you, you may have no idea how someone else might be thinking about you, but Jesus does and it matters to him. So he is, and this is, this is vintage Jesus, he is simultaneously unavoidably challenging and extraordinarily dignifying. I began to find early in my, my Christian life, and it's, it's remained the case ever since, Jesus is much less easy than I thought he was going to be, and he's far more compelling. But we need to start here in Matthew 5 because Jesus is showing that none of us is right in this part of life. All of us are broken when it comes to our sexuality. All of us have some kinds of desires that we're going to have to say no to. Some instinctive ways of, of thinking about other people and looking at other people that are not right. All of us are going to need forgiveness in this part of life. So Jesus isn't singling anyone out here. He's, he's putting all of us in the, same, in the same boat. So his teaching is humbling for all of us. Um, the next text I want to look at, there are plenty we could think about, but is, it's Matthew 19, where Jesus is, is having an interaction with a, a group of people called the Pharisees, who are a kind of uh, movement of very conservative um, Jews at the time of Jesus. And in Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and we're told they test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Okay, that was the big issue at that particular time. This is the issue of controversy. This is what people were kind of falling out with each other on over, over Twitter and that kind of stuff, was can you, can you get divorced for any reason? And there was some, some teaching on divorce in the, in the Old Testament, some provision for, for divorce and there are these different schools of thought you know can you get divorced for this reason what about for that reason and they're not they're not coming to Jesus to learn from him or to see what his wisdom is they're coming to Jesus to try and trick him because they're thinking let's draw Jesus out on this hot potato issue because whatever Jesus says we can use it against him with someone so they're thinking if, if Jesus says, if, you know, that's ridiculous, of course you can't get divorced for any reason, this is, this is not a game, this really matters, they can then say, well, well we, we happen to be in the neighborhood of King Herod. King Herod had Jesus' cousin John the Baptist beheaded for questioning Herod's sexual ethics. 
So if Jesus comes down on that side, they can just phone up Herod. Whereas if Jesus says, yeah, whatever, you know, get divorced for any reason, doesn't matter, they can then turn around and say, well, Jesus, you're very soft on sin and try and hit him from that angle. So either way, they think they've got Jesus in a, in a kind of lock here. It's a bit like when you say to someone, have you stopped being stupid yet? <laughs> because whatever they say, yes or no, they, they're stupid, right? And it's just a, a, a warning to us. Anytime we think we've got kind of God cornered, it's generally not going to go well for us. So Jesus responds to them by saying, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? Lots of things going on there. The first thing Jesus is doing is he's teasing the Pharisees. They were proud of how thoroughly they knew their scriptures. And Jesus says to them, have you not read, and then quotes from Genesis chapter 1, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? In other words, Jesus is saying to them, listen, when you guys did your massive study of Scripture, did you get as far as, I don't know, page one? <laughs> did you make it as far as Genesis 1? So he's poking fun at them, but he's doing more than that. They're asking him a question about divorce, and Jesus answers by talking about marriage. In other words, he's saying you're not going to understand divorce unless you understand marriage. But more than that, by going back to Genesis 1, Jesus is saying far more than that. He's saying you're not going to understand marriage unless you understand how God has made us as male and female. Now we'll get on to more of this in the, in the second session. But Jesus is making a connection in this text between God making us male and female and the reality of marriage. So verse 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, Genesis 1, and said, now quoting Genesis 2, therefore, because of that, a man leaves his father and mother and, and holds fast to his wife. In other words, because God has made us male and female, we have this thing called marriage. That's the logic that Jesus is using here. So Jesus is predicating his understanding of marriage on the fact that we are sexually different as men and women. That is not to say that because God has made us men and women, therefore we should all be, all be married. Jesus himself was not married. But he does seem to be saying that we can only get married because there is such a thing as male and female. Now, I know this is, is one of the most countercultural things that could be said in, in our own particular cultural time and, and in a place like this. But Jesus is defining marriage here as being between a man and a woman. That's a hard truth for many of us to hear. But there's a, a couple of things that I think it's helpful to know about this. The first is, is this. One of the reasons Jesus' teaching on marriage is so profoundly countercultural in our time today is that it has always been profoundly countercultural. In one way or another. 
in any culture, what Jesus says about marriage is challenging. In some cultures, it's challenging because Jesus is saying, one man and one woman. In other places, Jesus' teaching on marriage is, is countercultural because he's, he's saying, actually, the husband has to love the wife. In our cultural context, it's challenging because Jesus is saying it's, it's a man and a woman, not a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. Jesus' teaching on marriage has always been very, very countercultural. The second thing to, to bear in mind about what Jesus is saying here is that it's not arbitrary. It sounds it to us, perhaps. It's very easy in a, in a kind of Western cultural context to think that Jesus is kind of arbitrarily saying, well, well, this is what marriage is, and there's no real rhyme or reason as to why he's saying that. We, you know, if, if we're people who naturally think, well, love is love, and it doesn't really matter who it is, and it's all the same, and it's all equal, this feels very arbitrary. It's if God is just sort of randomly saying, well, I've decided I don't like that, and I do like this. But actually, if you look at the wider sweep of scripture it's very clear that what Jesus is saying here is not arbitrary that the union, the joining together of a man and a woman has meant something from the very opening pages of the Bible so in, in Genesis 1 you have the, the account of creation, if you're familiar with it it's all kind of wide angle lens stuff, it's epic kind of scale, lots of CGI, that kind of stuff, ecosystems, planets, species, all the rest of it. And then something odd happens, and we're so familiar with it, we, we've lost the sense of how odd it is. But the very next thing that happens, God has made everything, is we suddenly find ourselves in Genesis 2 in a garden where a guy and a girl get together. And the question we should be thinking is, why, why does the Bible start like that? And the reason is because that guy and a girl getting together becomes a picture of what the whole Bible is going to be about. Because as the rest of the Bible unfolds, that this joining together of the man and the woman in, in marriage in Genesis 2 is a picture of how heaven and earth are going to be joined together through Jesus Christ. Because as the Old Testament unfolds, we, we begin to see that God is not just the deity above but he's a husband. And he can't not make outrageous covenants with those that he loves. He makes promises, lavish promises. And we see that his people are not just his, his fan base or his servants, but he calls them his bride. Often, sadly, his, his wayward and unfaithful bride. When Jesus arrives in the New Testament, one of the things he calls himself is the bridegroom. Because he's saying, I am that Old Testament divine husband you've been waiting for. The rest of the New Testament speaks of our, our relationship with Jesus, if we're, we're followers of Jesus, as a marital relationship. In Ephesians, when, Ephesians, when Paul is talking about marriage and he's, he's teaching husbands and wives what, that, what that's going to look like. He steps back and goes, guys, I'm talking about Jesus and the church. 
And the Bible ends in the book of Revelation with, with the wedding feast of, of Jesus and his bride, his people. And so this male-female union in the Bible has, has always had this special significance. It points beyond itself. Part of the reason God has given us marriage in the Bible is not just for the sake of <coughs> excuse me, companionship or, or you know, having kids and, and all the rest of it, but to, to point beyond itself to what all of reality is ultimately about, which is finding ourselves in the, the loving arms of the God who made us. And that the way the Bible speaks of this is that that is such a fundamental reality that God has embedded into human culture a signpost of it, a reflection of it. Well, as I was beginning to wrap my head as a youngish Christian around some of the things Jesus teaches, I, I, I came to a, a realization that if I was going to be a follower of Jesus, and, and actually obey what he teaches, it wasn't going to be appropriate for me to pursue those romantic feelings that I'd been experiencing. I realized that Jesus was, you know, Jesus teaches that sex outside of marriage is, is wrong. He teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman. And he teaches that all of us are, are not what we should be in this part of life. So I remember thinking, okay, now that I know that I've, what am I going to do with that? I, I reached a decision point. Do I, do I continue as a Christian, knowing that, living with those constraints? Or do I think, actually, this was nice while it lasted, Jesus, but I'm going to call it a day and, and pursue these romantic feelings? Well, I'm standing in a church, so it's probably pretty obvious which of those two paths I took. But for so many people today, maybe for many of us in the room, that, that question would feel like a no-brainer. If it's a choice between romantic and sexual fulfillment or following a religion, I suspect most people today would think, well, it's much healthier to pursue romantic and sexual fulfillment. And it would seem crazy to think otherwise. So I want to close this, this session just by giving you three reasons why I took the decision I did and why I'm still glad I did. Three reasons why Jesus is worth it, even if this is what he teaches and those are some of the constraints we have to, to live with. The first reason, this might sound dumb, is because of who Jesus is. You see, when you frame the question, you're going to follow romantic fulfillment or a religion, that's not doing justice to what we're talking about tonight. Because for followers of Jesus, our, our following of Jesus is not a religion to us. I mean, it has lots of components to it that would look religious or in, in some way, but that, that's not what it's about. It's not a commitment to a religion. Jesus is not a religious leader. Um, our belief is that he's the one who made us. So one of the things that, that has kept me wanting to follow Jesus, even when it's not easy to follow Jesus, is thinking, well, he knows me better than I know myself. The Bible says he's the creator. He, he made you. I believe he made every one of you. More than that, I, I, Jesus came up with the idea of you. You. 
He was having a good day when he did. He knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself. There's very good evidence that Jesus is more committed to your ultimate joy than you are. To the point of laying down his own life for you. If that's the case, I'd be a fool not to follow him. I remember thinking when I became a Christian, I remember thinking, I, I don't know what following Jesus looks like or what, what that means or what he requires. But I know I can trust him. I know he's going to do a better job of running my life than I am. Um, one of my friends has on the wall of her, her office where she works, the, the phrase, it's a little saying that she's had sort of done up and framed, and it says... Those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. And it's true. If you watch a music video and take away the volume, it's kind of ridiculous. Those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. And, and one of the things I say to friends of mine who aren't Christian believers, who kind of quiz me about why I live the way that I live as a, as a Christian believer, one of the things I have to say is this is not going to make sense unless you understand who Jesus is to me. Um, I speak on this issue from time to time, um, university campuses and that kind of place, and have some, as you would imagine, some uh, lively discussions and, and conversations with, with folks about it. And occasionally someone will say, listen, you just can't believe today what you believe about marriage. You just can't. And I get that. And I say to myself, I totally understand where you're coming from. But you might not realize you're doing this. You're actually telling me to stop being a follower of Jesus. Because I, I believe what I believe about this because I believe what I believe about Jesus. And I'm, I'm following what he teaches, and this is what he teaches about sex and marriage. So you're actually telling me to, to stop following him. Do you, do you have the authority to tell me to stop following Jesus. And most of the time when you put it that way, someone will say, well, okay, I hadn't, hadn't realized that was what was going on. That's, 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 <coughs> excuse me, that's fair enough. Can I grab that? Um... <coughs> Thank you for bearing with me. Um, and from the... the <laughs> I, I lost count of how many people came up to me and said, I've got cough drops, you want cough drops? <laughs> so clearly I'm not the only one who's had kind of tickly throat. So I was telling you why Jesus is worth it. Um, I, I'm happy to lose my voice talking about anything else under the sun, but I really do want to be able to tell you why Jesus is worth it. And I was telling you Jesus is worth it because of who he is. And I said that, you know, if, if someone says you can't believe that today, they're telling me to not follow Jesus. And most people have the, the kind of self-awareness at that point to go, yeah, okay, I didn't appreciate that's where it was coming from, or that's what it meant. Fair enough, I'm not going to tell you to stop being a Christian. But every once in a while, someone does say, actually, yeah, if, if Jesus says that about marriage, you shouldn't follow him. You shouldn't be a Christian. And the, the two or three times someone has said that to me, actually, it's, the response to that is easy. I, I just simply say to them, 
okay, please tell me what you have going for you that means I should follow what you say about this rather than what Jesus has saying about it, rather than what Jesus says. What have you got going for you that Jesus doesn't have going for him? He died for me and rose again. That's where the bar is currently set. Okay, if you can, if you can improve on that, I'm genuinely interested. But that's what you're up against. That's why I'm following him and why I'm not following you. In other words, whoever we are, I, I want us to be bothered by Jesus. I want people to know that if they profoundly disagree with me on this, I can, that's fine. But the issue is not me. It's not me you might be disagreeing with. It, it's not the church. It's not this thing called Christianity. It's, it's Jesus. And all of us have got to figure out what we're going to do with Jesus. So that's the first reason Jesus is worth it. It's simply because of who he is. He is like no one else. And so his words carry unique authority and beauty to those of us who've come to follow him. The second reason is because of how he calls all of us. Um, in Mark's gospel, Jesus says some, some well-known words to, to many people. Um, uh, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, this is Mark 8 verse 34, if anyone would come after me, if anyone's going to follow him, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I love that verse. That is so significant. Jesus is saying, listen, before you, before you take, the, the, you know, take that step, I want you to know before you follow me that it's not going to be easy to follow me. I love how upfront and open Jesus is about that. He doesn't bury that in the small print. Do you ever do that thing? I know Christians aren't supposed to lie, but every time that this thing pops up and says, do you agree to the terms and conditions? <laughs> I go, yeah. Have I read them? No. I don't have that kind of time. So every time I get a new update on my phone, it says, have you read the terms and conditions? I just say, yeah, whatever. Okay, I may have just promised my soul to Apple, but I think I'd already <laughs> promised it to Microsoft 10 years ago. So whatever's left over of it, Apple can help themselves to. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't hide things. He doesn't bury things in the small print. He wants us to know following him is not going to be easy. But notice the key word there is anyone. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Jesus is saying there is not a single person on the planet for whom following Jesus would not be costly. This is what it means to be a Christian. He says, deny yourself. If you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. What does that mean? Well, to deny yourself is to say a profound no to some of your deepest longings and yearnings and intuitions. Who we think we are, Jesus is saying we need to give over to him. This is so significant because, again, part of the, the cultural air we breathe today is you've got to be true to yourself. And Jesus is saying the exact opposite. You've got to deny self. Uh, friends who have young kids and, and are made to watch more Disney movies than I am 
tell me that this is pretty much the message of every Disney movie for the last 10, 15 years, is you've got to be true to yourself. You've got to look deep inside your heart to discover who you truly are, and you've got to be true to that, whatever the cost, and that is the way to real life. That is what we believe today. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you look deep inside your heart, you're not going to find the solution to your angst. You're going to find the reason for it. And one of the amazing, extraordinary things about the Christian life is as you deny self and follow Jesus, you don't become a nobody. You don't become a non-person. You don't become less who you are. You actually become your real self. I don't know how Jesus pulls this off. I just know that he does. If every single one of us in this room was to follow Jesus and become more like him, we would become more like Jesus. We wouldn't become more like each other. As you deny self and follow Jesus, you actually become the you that Jesus thought up in the first place. The you that you've sensed in your more thoughtful moments that you're supposed to be. He talks about taking up a cross. That, again, is such a vivid picture from the time of Jesus of, of yielding your life. I often wear a little chain with a, with a cross on it around my neck, but that is not what Jesus is talking about when he says, take up your cross. When we become a follower of Jesus, we're yielding our lives to him. We're giving him everything. So occasionally someone says to me, well, are you, are you, are you seriously telling me Jesus wants me to give him my sexuality? And the answer is no. Oh, no, it's far worse than that. <laughs> Jesus wants your whole life. Your sexuality is far too small a thing on its own. Jesus is demanding everything of all of us. The very next verse, um, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. In other words, Jesus is saying, there's going to be times when following him feels like he's killing you. It feels, sometimes it feels like he's taking life from you. But one of the weird things in the Christian life is as you look back on those times, you realize actually Jesus was giving you life. But certainly for me, it, it, it's helped me to think, okay, I can, I can feel the pinch of the cost of following Jesus very acutely in certain areas of life in particular. But I know that every single Christian is feeling that same pinch in some part of their life. So it's not like I'm on a worse deal than somebody else is. So let me, let me put this as, as, as clearly as I can. If you think the cost of following Jesus is too high for your LGBTQ plus friends, you think it's too high for anyone. Because the same cost is applied to all of us. So I was aware of the cost of discipleship for me, but I could, I could look over the fence and think, actually, no, this is, following Jesus is hard for everyone. 
in different ways. But no one gets let off the hook here. All of us deny self, take up cross, and follow Jesus. And it's his mercy to give us those, those things to do. Because we begin to realize in time, actually, you know, this, is, this is real life. This is, Jesus is giving me back my humanity. The third reason is, is what Jesus has to offer us. And I could talk about any number of things here. Um, but I'm going to mention just one thing, which has, has become so particularly precious to me. Um, you may well know this, this scripture as well. In John chapter 6, verse 34, uh, sorry, verse 35, Jesus says to his uh, followers, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is claiming to give us ultimate satisfaction. He says, I am the bread of life. There are various places in John's gospel where Jesus says, I am and lists off different things. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so on. And if I'm completely honest, the first time I came across I'm the bread of life, I wasn't, wasn't massively sure what to do with it. Okay, when Jesus says I'm the good shepherd, I can think, okay, that, I'm, I'm a dumb sheep. I need, I need that. Thank you. When Jesus says I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I'm thinking, yes, Simon, those are urgent. I need those things. Yes, please. When Jesus says I'm the bread of life, I'm thinking... Okay, are you, are you getting a bit desperate towards the end of your resume and kind of looking for stuff to put on it? I mean, it's, I'm the bread of life. Well done. I mean, what do I, what do, I do with that? I'm, I like bread. I'm pro-bread. I didn't know what it meant because for us, you know, if you go out for lunch or, or for dinner and the waiter says, would you like any bread for, table, for the table? And you think, you might, you might not. You can take it or leave it. It's not essential. And so when we hear Jesus say, I'm the bread of life, it, it feels like he's saying, would sir like a bit of religion for the table? And we're thinking, I might, I might not. And that's, that, you know, you can take it or leave it. But at the time of Jesus, if you didn't have bread, you didn't live. Bread was the staple. You, you would spend your, your, your working day making sure you would have bread to eat and so when Jesus says I'm the bread of life what he's actually saying is I am to your soul what bread is to a starving stomach when he says I'm the bread of life he's saying I am the one thing that can truly and fully satisfy you And we need to hear that because I used to read it as Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. And I go, okay. What I realize is he's saying, what I realize he's saying is, I am the bread of life. And for so many of us, it feels like romantic fulfillment is the bread of life. And again, this is the message in, in pretty much any movie of any genre you watch. The message is some version of, unless you have that special someone in your life, you're actually missing out on what life is about. And if you do have that special someone, it doesn't matter what else is going on in your life. If you've got that, you're okay. 
Uh, a friend of mine was, was flying to the US from the, the UK. He watched three movies back to back. One was a superhero movie, one was a romantic comedy, one was a sort of shoot 'em up. He said the message with all, with all three was the same. You've, you've got to have romantic fulfillment. And so again, the air we're breathing is saying that is the bread of life. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That can't provide ultimate satisfaction. It's a good thing in the right context. But it can't be an ultimate thing. Um, I'm an ordained pastor back in England, so I get to officiate at weddings occasionally and, and love getting to do that. You have the best seat in the house when the, when the bride comes down the aisle. I love it. But occasionally, one of the things I, I feel led to say at, at weddings is, if you find that your marriage disappoints you, bear in mind that it's supposed to. It's not designed to fulfill you. It's designed to point to the thing that does fulfill you. I sometimes say to, to kind of groups of, of younger people, listen, if you, if you get together with someone, if you marry someone thinking they are going to fulfill all of your emotional needs, you're going to be a nightmare to be married to. Because they can't. I remember being at a, a, a friend had a uh, engagement party, and you know he was he was right to praise his his fiance. She's wonderful, wonderful woman now now wife. But he said at this engagement party, he said, "You know, you are the light of my world." And I remember thinking, "Yeah, that that gets you some romantic brownie points. I'll, I'll grant you that, but." It's not kind to say of her something that's only true of Jesus. God did not put that poor woman on this planet to be the light of your world. No, Jesus is saying he is the one who can satisfy. He's saying there's a hunger in us for something that nothing in this world will ultimately satisfy. There's a hunger in our souls and again, we know that at an intuitive level because whatever it is we think will be enough for our life, if we ever get any of it, it isn't. Um, I can never remember when, when Rockefeller was, was around, but he was like, like the richest person on the planet, right? And some, I can't remember how many billions of, of dollars he was worth in, in today's money, but someone once interviewed him and said, how much money is enough and with complete candor, he answered, just a little bit more. If money is your thing, however much you have will never feel like it's enough. If romantic fulfillment or security is what you think is that you need, it'll never be enough. It will never be secure enough. Jesus is saying he is the bread of life. He's the only one who can satisfy us at the very deepest level. Which means if you get Jesus, it doesn't matter what else you go without, ultimately. I'm, I'm not married. There are times when I've thought, oh man, it would be, be, be lovely to be a husband. 
and at times it would be but that's not the that's not the real win the real win is getting more of Jesus he is the bread of life so Jesus is worth it because of who he is he's worth it because of how he calls all of us and he's worth it because of what he uniquely offers so I'm sure there are a number of us you know, differing places of what we think about these issues here tonight as, as Wade said earlier if you, if you know you're here as someone who's not a Christian you're kind of looking in just to see what we have to say again thank you for coming um, but I hope one of the things you get from tonight is this isn't about sexuality this is about Jesus and ultimately you need to figure out what you think of him in order to figure out what you think of what we believe.